Perhaps you've had this feeling. You're at your job or maybe a volunteer gig and you finished a project that was important to you and to your organization and somebody thanks you or compliments you for a job well done and you don't know how to receive it. Back in the early 90s, I worked for an AmeriCorps program called City Year and I had been tasked with running their big fundraiser event in Columbia, South Carolina, which where it had never been run before. The event is called a Servathon, and it's like a dance-a-thon or a walk-a-thon where folks raise money. But in this case, instead of walking or dancing, they do service projects like painting schools or cleaning parks. Well, the event I ran was a huge amount of work, but wildly successful. I had moved to South Carolina for four months and I'd worked night and day with very few days off from the time I arrived until the day of the event. I recruited staff and volunteers. I trained them. I did outreach. Some nights I slept on the floor of the office. Talk about unhealthy work balance, little work-life balance issues. And I remember sitting on the edge of the stage of the event at the end of the day, exhausted and relieved it was over. And one of the VIPs from the city year headquarters who had flown in from Boston came up to me and said, you did an amazing job. How do you feel? And I said, of all things, I think I made a lot of mistakes. Not I'm proud of what I did or what an amazing day or I can't believe all I accomplished just criticizing myself and deflecting praise. Why did I do that? Why do so many of us do that? I could have said thank you and held that moment of recognition for what it was, a genuine acknowledgement of some good work. Does this seem familiar to anyone here? Why do we sometimes have such a hard time accepting thanks and accepting compliments? And I'd like to rephrase that question as another question that answers the first question. Got it? Stick with me. This will make sense in a minute. I'm asking, why don't we love ourselves? When I ask, why don't we accept someone's gratitude for the things that we really did? Or why must we find a way to minimize compliments directed at us? I think we're really just touching on a much deeper issue. The fact that for so many of us, we just don't love ourselves the way we should. We don't really believe that we're worthy of love from anyone or anything, and certainly not from ourselves. How does this happen? How does a child, a baby, go from being surrounded by love and sure of their place in the universe to doubting their own worth? I think some of the answers are fairly obvious. We live in capitalism, for starters. Capitalism runs on our insecurities. So we're bombarded with messages that we're not thin enough, aren't attractive enough, don't have enough, aren't cool enough. If we didn't internalize this sense of scarcity that's being imposed from outside, we wouldn't be buying and buying 
And then where would we be? Well, I think we'd be happier and maybe we'd live on a planet that wasn't burning. We also get messages about our inadequacies from our parents and family, sadly. So often they're just passing on messages that they receive themselves. The fact that they've received a lot, received those terrible messages doesn't justify it, but it sure does explain a lot. And there's this great poem by Philip Larkin that I want to share. It's called, This Be the Verse. And by the way, I'm, I'm changing a word that occurs in the second, first and second stanza that should not be said from the pulpit. <laughs> so here's the poem. They mess you up, your mom and dad. They do not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were messed up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on mystery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Well, Larkin's advice about not having children is certainly one choice, actually a choice that I made. Uh, but I have real admiration for folks who have children and work hard to make sure that they don't repeat the patterns that were handed down to them. That takes real discipline and self-awareness. And for the parents who are listening now who are doing that hard work, I salute you. Nice going. Finally, as many folks in this congregation know all too well, Religious messages can take away the love that we should have for ourselves. When a child is told by no less an authority than God that they are somehow unclean, unworthy, unlovable, it's hard not to take that to heart. Religion has a lot to account for. And I hope that folks who bring prior religious trauma to this congregation are finding a place of safety and healing. I think we've all lived with the consequences of not loving ourselves enough. Depending on how severe the case is, it can result in folks sabotaging relationships and opportunities. It's, it can be hard to love another person when we don't love themselves. I know it's a cliche, but it's real. I remember a guy I worked with in Afghanistan who was a real piece of work, just a miserable person. I was his boss, lucky me, and he would argue with me about everything, everything. And one day he was haranguing me about something stupid and he tapped his breast pocket. And I had noticed that he always carried a bunch of three by five cards wrapped in a rubber band. And, and I figured that this is just how he keeps himself organized. Well, that day he tapped his breast pocket and he said, I'm keeping a record of you just like I keep a record of everyone who does me wrong. My ex-wife is in here. People who don't love themselves have a hard time loving people. So how do we foster love for ourselves? How do we overcome all those messages that we received when we were so vulnerable? I think there's no one way, and I think it can be deeply personal. 
I, for one, am a giant fan of therapy, and my years of it have helped me care for myself in a way that I would not have otherwise. And there are a bunch of small, almost silly ways that actually do help. Taping encouraging notes to yourself on your bathroom window, bathroom w- more mirror rather. You know, and I actually, I have an I love me wall. <laughs> it's a wall in my home office where I hang all those plaques and group photos and commend commendations and certificates. I look at it and it does help me feel grounded in communities and experiences that remind me where I've been and where I'm going. And I feel good about it. Now, one thing, though, is just to note, if if you do make an I love me wall, you want to put it in a fairly discreet place. For me, my home office where my I love me wall lives is also my guest bedroom. And my overnight guests must think that I am a raging egomaniac. So there is that. These are all pretty conventional advice about how to love ourselves better. And I want to offer something that I think is a little more profound. I think a way, a powerful way to regain that sense of loving ourselves is by being in a community. Specifically, by being in a community community that reflects back all of us and still welcomes us. A community that sees us as a whole and chooses to embrace the best parts of us. Those good parts that we all have to offer doesn't happen happen right away, but over time in a community like this, we start to see ourselves the way that our loving community sees us. And it's my prayer that we here at First Unitarian can be that kind of community where we see the best parts of each other. It's been a rough year and we're all traumatized to some degree. Can we do that? Can we love each other into loving ourselves? Let's give it a try. Finally, I wonder if love requires space. Do we hold on too tightly to other things, clutching expectations and guilts and past hurts? Does that squeeze out the room where love might come in like a friendly guest? Maybe we need to let some things go. Let go of our old scripts of, we're not good enough. We don't deserve love. We do. We really, really do. Each of us deserves love. I want to stop at this point by sharing a short poem by a poet who passed unexpectedly last week. and Lots of folks are mourning Camila Asia Moon right now. And I can't think of a better way to honor her memory than to share some of her words. It goes like this. Once you've decided it's a decision, your skull won't won't bleach in the sun like a lost animal. What else is there to do in any desert but to study at the feet of succulents, drawing relief out of nowhere? bristling with lessons. To walk and walk far past whatever singed, the trudge of faith everybody at fire knows, until some inexplicable 
glorious flower or face. Sirens, the water and honey rooted in yourselves. Rolls all those little stones away from the tomb of your heart and roars without words. Rise. So alert congregants have probably noticed that the title of the sermon is The Possibilities of Gratitude and maybe wondering how I got so far afield during my sermon up to this point. Well, here's the part where I bring that back home. Today is the kickoff of our annual pledge campaign, and I want to talk about it. A lot of ministers don't care for giving this kind of sermon. And I for sure never want to be seen, the church to be seen as always having its hand out. But to be honest, I love giving this sermon. I love talking about how amazing this religious community is. And I love talking about our life-affirming, life-saving faith. It's been the year like any other year here. And life and vitality still pervade this church. Here's a few of the many things that we've done. Since last year, we participated in two rounds of the anti-racism program, Beloved Conversation, as well as did a lot of other intentional work to undo white supremacy. We held our first online Connections Week, and many folks reported that they prefer it to the in-person event. Both Angela and Susan Peck took sabbaticals, that demonstrates our commitment to keeping our religious professionals refreshed and renewed. We brought on our new ministerial inter intern, Matt Pargeter Villarreal. This is continuing this congregation's role as a place where we shape the future of Unitarian Universalism by helping seminarians learn and grow. And we joyfully ordained our last ministerial intern, the now Reverend Jane Davis. Oh, and uh, yeah, we bought a building. <laughs> and life went on. We continued to hold memorial services and weddings in our services. You know, the sanctuary has been closed, but the church was very much open. And there are practical reasons for supporting the church now. We are better stewards of the congregation's money than ever before. We just hired an outstanding director of finance, Philip Robinson, and he was instrumental in the successful completion of our first financial audit in five years. And we came through without a blemish. A blemish. And this church is evolving to, to meet the demands of the moment and the ways that our congregants, congregation's needs have changed. We added the in-person service and kept up our high quality Zoom worship so that folks can participate in the way that works for them. Regardless of the medium, we continue to do good church. I have a specific example that I really love. So as you know, every Sunday, there's a tech team of three or four folks who work behind the scenes of our Zoom worship to keep the service safe and high quality. And whenever the tech team notices someone who might be struggling, for example, they might keep joining the meeting, then dropping out of the meeting. If that happens, someone from the tech team will proactively look that person up in the directory and call them. 
Hey, I see that you're having some problems. Can I help you? That is good church. So given all this, despite the bleakness of the moment in the world, I see a bright future and grand possibilities for this religious community. There are people who say that religion is a way to describe the world as it is, as a way to make sense of the world as it is, to help us see what's around us. I don't agree. I think religion describes the world as we one day want it to be. Now we know that there are religions that aspire to a world of hierarchy and dominance. We know that there are religions that aspire to a world where conformity is valued and the dominant culture defines what should be conformed to. But I love the fact that Unitarian Universalism aspires to a world that sees our interconnections. Unitarian Universalism aspires to a world where everyone is valued. This faith aspires to a world of kindness and courage and love. Every day I see people in this church working to create that world. You know, sometimes we're so close to the work, we don't notice the amazing things that are happening right, un right under our noses. Like how our music program creates beauty and meaning week in and week out. How the covenant groups and the explorations team continue to feed the soul. How the path to citizenship class has had 11 participants become U.S. citizens since the pandemic started. 11 people had their life changed. Unitarian Universalists walk the talk. Or more accurately, we pray with our hands and our mouths and our feet. This church, this religious community, holds the space for those prayers. And the sum of those prayers, the aspiration, is a world where beloved community is real. Please join in creating that world by pledging generously. Amen and blessed be.